All right, so we're on, uh, we're just beginning part two of uh, on the mode of existence of technical objects. Um, so we finished part one last time. Um, so we looked at, so part one was primarily looking at um, the evolution of technical objects. So we introduced this notion of concretization um, and we saw how that works in uh, different examples. Um, so part two is about uh, the relationship between uh, uh, technology and, and the human being. Um, so uh, chapter one, the title is the two fundamental modes of relation between man and the technical given. Um, I think we'll be able to get through probably two sections today. The third section is a little bit longer, so maybe we'll save uh, sections three and four of this chapter for next time, um, but we'll see how far we get through. So uh, I'll start reading and then uh, other people can um, pick up from there if you would like. Okay, so section one, social majority and minority of techniques. We would like to show that the technical object can be connected with man in two opposing ways, according to the status of majority or of minority. The status of minority is one whereby the technical object is firstly an object of utility, necessary for everyday life, belonging to the heart of the environment where the, individual, where the human individual's growth and training takes place. In this case, the encounter between the technical object and man occurs in, essentially during childhood. Technical knowledge is implicit, non-reflective, and habitual. Conversely, the status of majority corresponds to an operation of reflection and self-awareness by the pre-adult, who has at his disposal the means of rational knowledge elaborated through the sciences. The knowledge of the apprentice is thus distinguished from that of the engineer. Once the apprentice has become an adult craftsman and the engineer has been integrated into a network of social relations, they retain and project a vision of the technical object that corresponds in the first case to the minority status and in the second case to the majority status. What we have here are two very different sources of representation and judgment related to the technical object. However, the craftsman and the engineer don't merely live for themselves. They are both witnesses to and agents of the relation between human society as a whole and the world of technical objects, and they have an exemplary value. It is through them that the technical object is incorporated into culture. To the present day, these two modes of incorporation have not been capable of providing corroborating results. To the extent that there is something akin to two different languages and types of thought arising from techniques that are incoherent with each other. This lack of coherence is partly responsible for the contradictions of contemporary culture, to the extent that it judges and represents the technical object in relation to man. So this is again the theme that we uh, we saw in the introduction and uh, in the technical mentality paper um, about the incorporation of techniques into culture um, and uh, different modes of relating to techniques. Would someone like to read the next paragraph? No volunteers? Sure, I can go. Moreover, this conflict between the majority aspect and the minority aspect is only a particular case of inadequacy that has always existed between the individual or social man and technical reality. Throughout antiquity, a large part of technical operations were excluded from the domain of thought. They were operations that corresponded to servile occupations. Just as the slave was excluded from the city, servile occupations and the technical objects corresponding to them were banned from the universe of discourse, reflexive thought, and culture. Only the sophists, and to a certain extent Socrates, made the effort to introduce the technical operations practiced by slaves 
or freedmen into the domain of noble thought. Majority status was granted to only a few operations, such as agriculture, hunting, war, and the art of navigation. Techniques that used tools were kept outside the domain of culture. Cicero takes most of his metaphors from the noble arts, in particular agriculture and navigation. The mechanical arts are rarely evoked by him. Should I keep going? Uh, yeah, I think this is pretty um, straightforward at this point, so we probably don't need to um, discuss too much here. So yeah, maybe you can continue with the next paragraph. Going further back in time, one discovers that such and such a civilization also created the distinction between noble techniques and non-noble techniques. The history of the Jewish people reserves a privileged place for pastoral techniques and considers the land as cursed. God accepts the offerings of Abel, but not those of Cain. The pastor is superior to the farmer. The Bible contains a multitude of schemas of thought and paradigms drawn from various ways for helping to foster the flock. Conversely, the Gospels introduce modes of thought taken from the experience of agriculture. Perhaps one could find a certain technological bias at the origin of mythologies and religions, concentrating one, consecrating one technique as noble and not granting citizenship to the others, even when they are used effectively. This initial choice between a major and minor and a minor technique, between a valued technique and a devalued technique, grants an aspect of partiality, of non-universality, to the culture that incorporates technical schemas. Our research does not propose to ascertain the reasons and modalities of this choice between fundamental techniques in each particular case, but simply to show that man, human thought must establish an egalitarian relation without privilege between techniques and man. This task must still be accomplished because these phenomena of technical dominance, because of which there is in each epoch a part of the technical world that is recognized by culture, while other parts of the technical world are rejected, maintain an inadequate relation between human reality and technical reality. Right, so here it's not just, um, it's not technology as a whole. Um, in uh, ancient Greek and uh, you know, the biblical um, Jewish culture, it's not technology as a whole that is excluded, but there is certain um, uh, fields of, uh, of technique that are incorporated into culture and that are valued. Um, um, that are drawn upon for metaphors and um, um, that are sort of incorporated into thought. But then there are other domains that are excluded and devalued. Um, and so the, the task that he's, uh, that Simon Dong is proposing here is to um, try to incorporate all aspects of technique. Um, so everything that uh, is part of the technique of our culture should be um, incorporated into thought in the same way. Okay, so I'll continue uh, from here, unless anyone else uh, is dying to read. No, okay. The disappearance of slavery in Western Europe allowed ancient servile techniques to come to light and manifest themselves in clear thought. The Renaissance recognized artisanal techniques by shedding the light of rationality upon them. Rational mechanics introduced machines into the domain of mathematical thought. Descartes calculated the transformations of movement within the simple machines used by the slaves of antiquity. This effort towards rationaliza rationalization, signifying an integration into culture, continued up until the end of the 18th century. Yet despite this, unity of techniques did not persist. A genuine reversal took place, which repressed the ancient noble techniques, those of agriculture and animal husbandry, into the domain of the irrational, the non-cultural. 
the relation to the natural world was lost and the technical object became an artificial object, distance, distancing man from the world. We are only now beginning to see the possibility of an encounter between the way of thinking inspired by techniques related to living beings and an artificialist way of thinking concerned with constructing automata. Mechanical techniques were only truly able to attain majority status by becoming a technique thought by the engineer, rather than remaining the techniques of the craftsman. At the artisanal level, the concrete relation between the world and the technical object still exists, but the object thought by the engineer is an abstract technical object unattached to the natural world. In order for culture to incorporate technical objects, one would have to discover an intermediary between the majority status and the minority status of technical objects. The condition of the disjunction between culture and techniques resides in the disjunction that exists within the world of techniques itself. In order to discover an adequate relation between man and the technical object, one would have to be able to discover a unity of the technical world through a representation that would incorporate both that of the craftsman and that of the engineer. The representation of the craftsman is, is drowned in concreteness, engaged in material manipulations and sensible existence. It is dominated by its object. The representation of the engineer is one of domination. It turns the object into a bundle of measured relations, a product, a set of characteristics. So we have, so we we saw the the two um, uh, spheres of uh, technique in the last paragraph, the valued and the devalued, um, and then now uh, in this paragraph, um, this distinction um, is brought into the two uh, modes of relating to technique. So you have the the craftsman and the engineer. Um, and the craftsman uh, uh, works on these uh, devalued techniques, and then the engineer works on the valued techniques. Um, and uh, so the task here is to integrate these two um, modes of relating to technique, uh, the craftsman and the engineer. Uh, would someone like to read the next uh, couple paragraphs? Uh, hello, I could try. Sure, thanks. The prime condition for the incorporation of technical objects into culture would thus be for man to be neither inferior nor superior to technical objects, but rather that he would be capable of approaching and getting to know them through entertaining a relation of equality with them, that is, a reciprocity of exchanges, a social relation of sorts. The compatibility or incompatibility between different technological modes is worth subjecting to a conditional analysis. Perhaps it will be possible to discover the conditions of compatibility between one technology and another, such as that of the Romans and that elaborated by the civilized societies of our day. Perhaps it will be possible to discover a real, if unapparent, incompatibility between the technological conditions of the 19th century and those of the mid-20th century. Certain myths born from the inappropriate encounter between two incompatible technological paradigmatisms could then be brought back to their initial conditions and analyzed. So here is probably worth uh, uh, pointing out again that um, Simon Don uses the word technology um, not for the, uh, the objects themselves, for you know, machines and computers and so on, um, but for the study or the uh, the thinking of um, technique of, of machines and computers. Um, so when he talks about technology in this paragraph, he's talking about um, the mode of apprehending in thought um, the technical reality. 
so um, he's talking about the incompatibility um, between certain representations of technical reality and uh, the technical reality itself. So if we're using 19th century concepts to uh, to understand 20th century technology, then then we're going to have uh, this incompatibility, and uh, uh, we're not going to be able to incorporate all elements of the, of technical reality into culture. All right, so that's the first section, um, just introducing this, these two modes of relating to technology and, uh, uh, sorry, to the modes relating to the technical reality um, and uh, setting the task of integrating those two modes. So we're going to see a little bit more of that in the next uh, section. Uh, so section two, techniques learned by the child and techniques through the thought by the adult. One cannot study the status of the technical object in a civilization without taking into account the difference between the relation of this object to the adult and, and the child. Even if life in modern societies has accustomed us to thinking that there is a continuity between the life of the child and of the adult, the history of technical education quickly shows that the distinction did, did exist and that the characteristics of uh, the acquisition of technical knowledge are not the same depending on whether this acquisition takes place in the adults or in the child. We have no intention whatsoever of laying down a normative rule, but merely of showing that the characteristics of teaching techniques have varied greatly throughout time, and that they have varied not only due to the, st the state of techniques or the structure of societies, but also because of the age of the subjects who were learning. One could discover therein a circular relation of causality between the state of techniques and the age of knowledge acquisition, constituting the technician's qualifications. If a very, very poorly rationalized techniques requires an extremely precocious initiation of learning, then the subject will, even as an adult, retain a basic irrationality in his technical knowledge. He will possess it by virtue of, of a very profound acquisition due to his early habitual immersion. As a result, the technician's knowledge will not consist of clearly represented schemas, but of a manual dexterity possessed almost by instinct and entrusted to this second nature that has happened. His science will be at the level of sensorial and qualitative representations, very close to the concrete aspects of matter. This man will be endowed with the power of intuition and, and complicity with the world that will give him, give him a very remarkable aptitude that can only manifest itself in work and not in consciousness or discourse. A craftsman will be like a magician and his knowledge will be operational rather than intellectual. It will be an ability rather than a knowing. By its very nature, it will be a secret for others because it will be a secret for himself, for his own consciousness. So this is going into more detail about um, the craftsman mode of relation to uh, technical reality that uh, was mentioned in the, in the last section. And uh, uh, we also saw this in the technical mentality paper uh, that we read uh, uh, about six weeks ago or something like that. Um, so um, yeah, we're gonna see more on this. Uh, so the, the, the craftsman mode of relation to technical reality is uh, the one that is um, learned as a child, uh, and so it's, it doesn't involve intellectual representation of the functioning of the technical reality. It's um, a, um, a habituation to the functioning of the technical reality, and uh, it, it's, it doesn't involve um, conscious knowledge of the, the principles of that functioning. Mm, if I may, I, I find these sections especially interesting. Uh, I, I don't think it's very often that Simondon is getting into psychology. And in this case, he seems to be uh, stepping into the zone of what's called developmental psychology. 
uh, as a study of this uh, gradual uh, maturation of uh, human cognitive capacities. Um, and in this case, of course, uh, he stressed them, uh, those differences in the uh, domain of techniques. Um, and uh, of course, those terms like concreteness have uh, different significations in this context, I, I believe. Uh, or uh, the term concrete takes on another association. It's, uh, it's no longer uh, open to further developments. It is associated with a certain closeness. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, so he does use the word concrete here, the concrete aspects of matter. Um, um, so I'm not sure whether he uh, intends to um, point back towards his uh, his notion of concretization that we saw in the first part of the book. Um, so whether he's uh, um, characterizing artisanal or, or craftsman knowledge as being related to um, more uh, concretized technical objects. Um, uh, I think it might be more that he's pointing towards, um, yeah, just the the relationship of craftsman knowledge to uh, to the material um, properties of the technical object, rather than an intellectual representation of their functioning. Yeah, yeah, I believe they are different. Yeah. Uh, would someone like to read the next uh, couple paragraphs? Sure, I can go again. Uh, to this day, we find the existence of this technical subconsciousness, which cannot be verbalized in clear terms by reflective activity in farmers or shepherds, capable of directly grasping the value of seeds, the exposure of a plot, the best place to plant a tree or to set up a pasture so that it is sheltered and well-positioned. These men are experts in the etymological sense of the term. They take part in the living nature of the thing they know, and their knowing is one of profound, direct participation that necessitates an original symbiosis, including a kind of fraternity with a valued and qualified aspect of the world. Man here behaves like an animal who smells water or salt from a distance, who immediately knows where to choose the place for a nest without prior reasoning. Such participation is of an instinctive nature, and it is only present when the life of successive generations has made the rhythm of life the conditions of perception and the essential mental structures adapt to a kind of uh, a kind of activity aimed at a stable nature. In his remarkable tale titled *The Minds of Fallon*, E.T.A. Hoffman describes a similar power of intuition in the miner. He feels danger and can find minerals in the most hidden veins. He lives in a kind of co-natural relation with underground nature, and this co-naturalness is so profound that it excludes all other feeling or attachment. The true miner is a subterranean man, the one who descends into the mine without loving it. Won't the, the man who descends into the mine without loving it won't discover this essential co-naturalness, as is the case with the errant sailor who bravely signs up to work in the mine because he loves a young girl. He becomes the mine's victim on the very morning of his wedding. There is no morality here. The young sailor is full of merit and virtue, but he is a sailor and not a miner. He doesn't have the intuition of the mine. The phantom of the old miner warns him of the danger he is in because the mine rejects the intruder as one who comes from outside, from another trade, from another life, and who is not endowed with the power of participation. In the farmer, the shepherd, the miner, and the sailor, human nature doubles as a second nature, which is like an ancestral pact with an element or a region. 
It is difficult to say whether this sense of participation is acquired in the first years of life or whether it is involved in a hereditary patrimony. What remains certain is that this kind of technical training, formation, consisting of intuitions and purely concrete operative schemas that are very difficult to formulate or transmit through any kind of symbolism, be it oral or figurative, belongs to childhood. For this same reason, it is unlikely to evolve and can hardly be reformed in adulthood. It is not, in fact, of a conceptual or scientific nature and cannot be modified through oral or written symbolism. Yeah, so I'm not uh, familiar with the story um, by uh, by Hoffman, but uh, um, I think the the sort of moral that he's drawing from the story is pretty clear. Um, but uh, so he's uh, developing further this uh, this idea of um, uh, the relationship uh, to technical reality um, through uh, that is learned uh, in childhood, um, and and that it uh, is a non-intellectual relationship um, that is. Uh, that consists, he, he says, consistent intuitions and operative schemas. Um, so it's a, a concrete relationship to um, a technical reality rather than uh, an abstract intellectual one. Okay, so I'll read the next bit. Um, this technical training is rigid. It would be entirely wrong to consider this technical training as necessarily inferior to a training using intellectual symbols. The quantity of information of this type of instinctive training can be as great as that contained within knowledge clearly explained through symbols, graphs, schemas, or formulas. It is too easy to oppose routine to science, which would by the same token be progress. Primitiveness cannot be confused with stupidity any more than conceptualization with science. But it is worth noting that this technical knowledge is effectively rigid, since man cannot become a child again in order to acquire new basic intuitions. Furthermore, this form of technics has a second characteristic. This characteristic is one of initiation and it is exclusive. It is indeed by growing up in a community that is already fully saturated with the schemas of a, of a particular work that the child acquires base intuitions. The one who comes from the outside will more than likely be deprived of this initial participation that requires the existence of vital conditions because the vital conditions are educational in this primary sense. It would without a doubt be wrong to attribute the closure of ancient techniques to the closure of the communitarian life of societies. Such societies in fact knew how to open themselves up as the temporary or seasonal migration of farmers from Auvergne to Paris toward the end of the 19th century shows. It is technics itself that corresponds in this case to a closed regime of life because uh, technical training is valid only for the society that formed it and is therefore the only one valid for that society. It seems that historians are inclined to consider the rights of initiation of ancient trades in a rather abstract manner by looking at them from a purely sociological point of view it is worth noting that there are tests that uh, correspond to a regime of acquisition of technical knowledge by the child. The test is thus not only a social right, but also an act through which the young subject becomes an adult by taming the world, by measuring himself with it in a critical circumstance and by triumphing. There is a certain magic in this test, which is an act through which the child becomes a man by using all his strength pushed to its extreme limit for the first time. If he weakens or shows himself to be inferior in this dangerous confrontation with the world and with matter, he risks foregoing the effectiveness of his manly action. If a hostile nature cannot be defeated, the man cannot become a complete adult because a gap has arisen between nature and himself. The test is a lifelong enchantment of the, of the technical being. It is an operation that creates the obedience of matter to man who has become its master because he succeeded in taming it like an animal that becomes docile from the day it first allowed itself to be led. If the first gesture is a mishap, the animal rebels and remains wild. 
it will never again accept this master who will himself forever be lacking in self-assurance because the immediate contact has been broken. In this test, a law of all or nothing manifests itself. Man and the world are therein transformed, an asymmetrical union is constituted. One must not say that the test is a demonstration of courage or ability as if it were simply an exam. It creates these qualities because courage is made by way of an immediate and certain connection with the world, which wards off all uncertainty and all hesitation. Courage is not a defeated fear, but a fear always warded off by the presence of an intuition because of which the world uh, is with the one who acts. The skillful man is the one whom the world accepts, whom matter loves and obeys with the faithful docility of an animal who has recognized his master. Skill is one of the forms of power, and power uh, supposes an enchantment making an exchange of forces possible, or rather a more primitive and more natural mode of participation than that of enchantment, which is already very elaborate and partially abstract. In this sense, skill is not the exercise of a violent despotism, but of a force conforming to the being which conducts it. There is, in the true power of the skillful man, a relation of recurrent causality. The true technician loves the matter upon which he acts. He is on its side. He is initiated, but respects that to which he is initiated. He forms a couple with this matter after having tamed it, and only delivers it with caution to the profane, because he has a sense of the sacred. The craftsman and the farmer to this day still experience an aversion to consigning some works or products to commerce that express their most refined and most perfect technical activity. This prohibition of commerciality, of divulgation, can be seen in the not-for-sale prints of the book that a printer, editor, or author can distribute. It can also be seen in the Pyrenean farmer who offers his visitor a certain food in his home, which can neither be bought nor taken away. Um, so I think this is pretty straightforward, but uh, just further developing um, uh, on the the artisanal uh, relationship to technical reality, um, which is acquired through child in childhood, um, and uh, there's this, this uh, concept of the um, the right of initiation or the test. Um, so this is something that um, you know appears in many societies, but I think it's uh, thinking of um, medieval guilds in uh, in Western Europe where you had to perform a, a certain work in order to be accepted as a member of, of the, uh, a full member of the guild. Um, so you have to perform a, a, a specific task um, and it serves both as a, a right of initiation um, and also as a, a test of your skill. Um, and so I think that's the, the type of, um, of, uh, of right that he's thinking of here. Okay, so who would like to uh, continue from here? Um, I can do the next part. The secret and the stable aspect of such a technics is thus not only a product of social conditions, it produces a structure of groups as much as the structure of the group conditions it. It is possible that every technics must to a certain extent contain a coefficient of intuition and instinct necessary for establishing the appropriate communication between man and the technical being. But besides this first aspect of technical formation, there exists a second aspect that stands in an inverse relation to the first, and which is essentially aimed at the adult. As in the preceding case, there is a dynamic action exerted on the individual man and on the group, leading him to possess an adult mentality. Um, I yeah, carry on. Yeah, um, 
The second type of technical knowledge is a rational, theoretical, scientific, and universal knowledge. The best example is Diderot and can't read that name, Encyclopedia. If the Encyclopedia appeared as a powerful and dangerous work, then it was not because of its veiled or direct attacks on the certain abuse of privilege, nor because of the philosophical aspect of certain articles. There were more violent libels and pamphlets than Encyclopedia. The Encyclopedia was respectfully, respectfully feared because it was moved by enormous force, that of a technical encyclopedism a force that had brought together powerful and enlightened protectors. This force existed by itself, because it responded to the needs of this time, more than political or financial reforms did. It was this force that was positive and creative, and which realized an equally remarkable assembly of researchers, editors, and correspondents by granting a face to this team composed of men who collaborated without being connected through social or religious communities. A great work had to be carried out. The greatness of the encyclopedia, its novelty, resides in the fact that its prints of schemas and models of machines, which are an homage to the trades and to the rational knowledge of technical operations, are fundamentally major. But these prints do not have the role of pure disinterested documentation for a public eager to satisfy its curiosity. The information in them is complete enough to constitute a usable practical documentation such that anyone who owns a book will be capable of building the described machine or further advancing the state reached by the techniques that domain through invention and to begin his research where that of others who preceded him leaves off. All right, so now so he's dis, um, discussed the, the minor um, mode of relation to technical reality and now he's he's uh, passing to the major mode so the intellectual mode of uh, of relation to technical reality um, and so his uh, example um, of this mode is the encyclopedia um, of uh, Diderot and d'Alembert um, so this was um, in the late 18th century um, um, a number of the sort of leading intellectuals in France um, who uh, whose work sort of fed into the, the French Revolution. Um, they were, uh, they worked together on this uh, massive encyclopedia, which was supposed to contain basically the, the peak of uh, human knowledge at that time. Um, and um, uh, one, I guess, um, noteworthy aspect of this encyclopedia is that it uh, includes um, very detailed technical um, knowledge. So, um, um, like a uh, graphical representation of how different machines work, um, um, the different tools that different trades use and so on. Um, so it's not just um, uh, sort of high culture um, and scientific knowledge, but also technical knowledge is incorporated into the encyclopedia. So that's what he's pointing to here. It's uh, this, um, the, the knowledge of different trades is um, brought into um, intellectual culture for the first time. Would someone else like to read the next uh, paragraph? Okay, I'll go again. Um, the method and structure of this new way of teaching stands in an inverse relation to the preceding one. It is rational and doubly universal. This is why it is adult. It is rational because it employs measurement, calculation, procedures of geometrical figuration, and descriptive analysis. It is also rational because it calls upon objective explanations and invokes experimental results with the aim of a precise presentation of conditions, treating as a hypothesis what is conjectural 
and as established fact, whatever one must consider as such. Not only is scientific explanation required, but it is required with a clear taste for the scientific spirit. Moreover, this way of teaching is doubly universal, both through the public it addresses and through the information it provides. Of course, what is taught here is high level knowledge, but despite this, it is meant for all. The cost of the book alone limits the possible purchases. This knowledge is given in the spirit of the highest possible universality, according to a circular schema that never supposes that a technical operation is closed in on itself through the secret of its speciality, but rather that it is related to other operations using analogous types of apparatuses and based upon a small number of principles. For the first time, one sees a technical universe constituting itself, a cosmos wherein everything is related to everything else rather than being je jealously guarded by a guild. This consistent and objective universality, which supposes an internal resonance of this technical world, requires that the book be open to all and that it constitute a material and intellectual universality, a block of available and open technical knowledge. This teaching supposes an adult subject capable of directing himself and of discovering by himself his own normativity without being directed by another being. The autodidact is necessarily an adult. A society of autodidacts cannot accept tutelage and the status of spiritual minority. It aspires to govern itself on its own and to manage itself. It is principally in this sense and through its technological power that the encyclopedia brought about a new force and a new social dynamic. The causal circularity of encyclopedic knowledge excludes the moral and political heteronomy of the monarchy, l'ancien régime. The technical world discovers its independence when it realizes its unity. The encyclopedia is a kind of fête de la fédération, of technics discovering their solidarity for the first time. Right, so here he's drawing the um, analogy between this um, technical majority, so the the uh, uh, capacity to have this intellectual understanding of uh, technical principles and to relate them to each other, um, rather than learning it uh, in this sort of passive way as a child. Um, so he's relating this technical majority to the idea of political majority, which um, um, sort of comes to the fore in the French Revolution. Uh, so the idea of being self-governing rather than having um, a monarch that uh, governs for us or that, that rules over us. And so we got through the first uh, two sections faster than I expected. So I think we might as well continue with the third section. Um, I'm not sure if we'll be able to finish uh, the full section or, or go on to, to section four, um, but we'll see how far we get. Um, so, section three, the common nature of minor techniques and major techniques, the signification of encyclopedism. We shall attempt to analyze the relation between the encyclopedic spirit and the technical object because it appears indeed to be one of the poles of all technical awareness and thus possesses, in addition to its historical signification, a sense of the knowledge of technicity that is still valid. We have opposed the implicit, instinctive, and magical aspect of technical education aimed at the child to the inverse aspects of the latter which one discovers in the encyclopedia. This opposition runs the risk of masking a deep analogy of the dynamisms inherent in these structurations of technical knowledge. Encyclopedism manifests and propagates a certain inversion of techniques' fundamental dynamisms. This inversion is nevertheless possible only because operations are not annihilated, but displaced and in, turn, in a way turned around. The encyclopedia also manipulates and transfers forces and powers. It too performs an enchantment and draws a circle like the magic circle. 
except that it does not enchant by the same means as those inherent in the testing of instinctive knowledge, and it is not the same reality that it places within the, the circle of knowledge. It is human society with its forces and obscure powers that is placed within the circle, having become immense and capable of comprising everything. This circle is represented and constituted by the objective reality of the book. Everything that is represented in the encyclopedic book is at the service of the individual who has in his possession a figural symbol of all human activities and their most secret details. The encyclopedia makes initiation universal and thereby produces a sort of rupture in the very sense of initiation. The secret of the objectified universal maintains a positive sense of the notion of the secret, the perfection of knowledge, a familiarity with the sacred, but annihilates the negative aspect, obscurity, a means of exclusion through mystery, knowledge reserves to a small number of men. Technics becomes an exoteric mystery. Uh, there's a footnote here. Um, part of this feeling of the efficacy of primitive magic has turned into the unconditional belief in progress. The object that is modern or has a modern aura, allure, is endowed with an almost supernatural, surnatural efficacy. The feeling of modernity comprises something of the belief in an unlimited and polyvalent power over the privileged object. That's the end of the footnote. The encyclopedia is a magic cipher, and is all the more efficient as it has been built with a more precise, more exact, and more objective representation of its model. All the active resources, all the living forces of human operations are assembled in this object symbol. Each individual capable of reading and of understanding possesses the root of the world and of society. Magically, everyone is master of everything because he possesses the root of the whole. The cosmos, once enveloping and superior to the individual, and the social circle constraining and always eccentric with, with respect to the power of the individual, are now in the hands of the individual, like the globe representing the world which the emperors carry as a sign of sovereignty. The power, the confidence of the reader of the encyclopedia is the same as that of a man who first attacked the effigy of an animal before confronting it in nature. The same once again as that of the primitive farmer who entrusted the seeds to the soil after having performed prop uh, propitiatory rites, or of the voyager who ventured to new places only after having rendered them in some way favorable through an act of establishing communion and prepossession in which the Odyssey preserves a memory. Footnote here, the right of possession of the earth accomplished by Ulysses approaching the island of the Phaeacians. End of footnote. The gesture of initiation is a union with a reality that remains hostile so long as it hasn't been tamed and possessed. It is for this reason that all initiation leads to virility and adulthood. Thus, from a psychosociological point of view, every manifestation of the encyclopedic spirit can appear within a society as a fundamental movement, mouvement de fond, expressing the need for attaining a state of freedom and adulthood. Since the current regime or customs of thought retain individuals within a state of tutelage and artificial minority, this will to move from a minority to a majority by way of enlarging the circle of knowledge and liberating the power inherent in knowing is what we encounter on three occasions in the history of thought since the Middle Ages. The first manifestation of the encyclopedic spirit is what constitutes the Renaissance and is contemporary with the ethical and religious revolution of the Reformation. To want to move from the Vulgate to the veritable text of the Bible, looking for the Greek text rather than contenting oneself with poor Latin translations, rediscovering Plato beyond the scholastic tradition crystallized according to a fixed dogma, is to refuse the arbitrary limitation of thought and knowledge. Erudition represents not a return to the past as past, but the will to enlarge the circle of knowledge, to rediscover all of human thought in order to be freed from a limitation of knowledge. That's so that was a kind of a long uh, section, um, but um, I think the, the fundamental idea is the idea of encyclopedism as, a, as um, incorporating this idea of initiation, but turning it into a, uh, um, 
a sort of public initiation. So rather than being initiated into um, a private secret um, uh, technique, it's an uh, initiation into um, a public and open technique. Uh, by the way, the form of the argument strikes me as really dialectical here. He started off by uh, positing this distinction between minor and major as an opposition. And now he's saying uh, we can find the kind of enchantment we find in minor also in major mode of access to technical objects. And so he does this cross-pollination that is, uh, in spirit, it seems dialectical to me. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, he uh, he does uh, on a few occasions. He he sort of criticizes the the idea of dialectics um, um, in the sense of uh, so he he rejects the idea that there is a, a negation um, included in the initial terms. So the idea of uh, um, dialectics operating through um, negation um, and then uh, overcoming that negation. Um, uh, the sort of Hegelian model of dialectics. Uh, so he rejects that model, but I think um, the conceptual schema that he uses, like this this mode of arguments in in this section, um, can be characterized as as dialectical in the sense that it's um, like you pointed out, it's this um, uh, sort of setting up an opposition and then uh, overcoming that opposition at a higher level. So would someone like to read the next uh, paragraph or maybe a couple paragraphs? I can read a little bit. Okay, thanks. The humanism of the Renaissance is not at all a will to redeploy a fixed image of man in order to restrain and normalize knowledge as the decay into which the study of classical antiquity has fallen would appear to suggest today. Humanism, first of all, responds to an encyclopedic movement, Elan. But this movement is always oriented towards already formalized knowledge because the level of technical development was not sufficiently advanced so as to allow a rapid formalization of this domain to intervene. The sciences in particular were too under, underdeveloped. The intellectual means of universalizing techniques were not ready. It is the 17th century that brought about the means for universalizing techniques, which the encyclopedia then put to work. Nevertheless, we should note the very positive attitude towards techniques from the Renaissance onward. Already with the Renaissance, techniques are valued as a paradigm and means of expression, or for their human value, which opens new paths. Rabelais' magnificent praise of the Pantagruelion plant summarizes all the hopes of the men of the Renaissance, all their beliefs in the virtue of techniques, thanks to which humanity would perhaps one day be capable of traveling all the way up to the celestial signs in the same way that humanity had traveled from the old world to the new world. Uh, the second encyclopedic stage is that of the enlightenment. Scientific thought was freed, but technical thought did not find liberation. It is scientific thought that freed technical thought. Since techniques touch on commerce, agriculture, and industry, and these are aspects of society, this technological encyclopedism could not help but be correlated with social and administrative reforms. Institutions such as the elite schools, grand ecolis, emerge from this encyclopedism. 
Encyclopedism is by definition polytechnic in its industrial form, just as it is phys physiocratic in its agricultural form. The industrial aspect becomes more developed than the physiocratic aspect because encyclopedic rationalization facilitated more pronounced transformations in the industrial domain, benefiting from the recent scientific discoveries of the late 18th century. This asymmetrical development, however, should not make us forget that one of the most important components of the technical encyclopedic spirit is the direct link between the individual with the vegetal, vegetal and animal world, with a biological nature. Rather than leaving it to the descendants of former serfs, the art of plowing is valued even by the most distinguished figures. This is the pastoral era, and a time where a mind as solid as that of Daubenton sees no shame in writing a treatise for shepherds, which is the prototype of generous high-level popularization. Unifying the old tradition of didactic works and giving it a new lease on life through the use of a clear graphic symbolism that is almost comprehensible enough for the illiterate. The substance of this beautiful book resides in its etchings, as neat and expressive as those of the encyclopedia. It must indeed be noted that technology calls for a means of expression other than oral expression, which uses already known concepts and which can transmit emotions, but struggles to express schemas of movement or precise material structures. A symbolism adequate for technical operation is visual symbolism with its rich play of forms and prop proportions. The civilization of the word gives way to that of the image. The civilization of the word, in turn, is by its very nature even more exclusive than that of the image, because the image is by, na by nature universal, requiring no prior code of significations. All verbal expression tends to become initiatory. It becomes specialized by becoming a kind of ciphered language, of which the old jargon of the guilds is a clear example. One has to belong to a closed group in order to understand the oral or written language. To understand schematic expression, it is enough to be able to perceive. It is with the schema that technical encyclopedism takes on all of its meaning, sense, and its power of diffusion by becoming truly universal. The printing press had given rise to a first phase of encyclopedism by distributing texts, but this encyclopedism could only reach reflexive or emotive significations already sanctioned by the constituted culture with a printed word as intermediary. The information going from individual to individual makes a detour through the social institution that is language. Through the mediation of the visual sign, printed writing first transmits an oral message with all the limitations inherent in this mode of expression. To be in possession of all the modern and all the dead languages is necessary for, understand, for the understanding of an encyclopedism of verbal significations. This possession, or at least the effort going towards this possession, is in part the meaning sense of the Renaissance. But in fact, it remains the privilege of humanists and scholars. Culture does not have any direct universality through oral or written language. It is perhaps for this reason that the Renaissance was unable to establish a technological university universality, <laughs> sorry, even though it had a tendency to prefer sculptural and graphic expression to all other symbolism, especially in the arts. Printing, which is a faculty for the diffusion of spatial schema, acquires its full sense in etchings. Yet symbolic etching uses a means for clearly translating a thought into the terms of structures and operations, freed of any intention in the direction of allegorical expression returning to oral expression, as on a coat of arms, 
appears with its complete development in the 17th century, as for instance in Descartes' treatises. Having borrowed its expressive force and its power of precision from the common use of geometry, it was now ready to constitute the adequate symbolism of a universal technology. Right, so this is, so he's, he's pointing out, uh, so he, he's, he's talking about the second stage of uh, this encyclopedism. Um, so the first stage was the, uh, um, the, the Renaissance and the Reformation. Um, um, so it's a, a primarily um, written, is it written word? Um, so he talks about the civilization of the word here. So it's a um, reappropriation of ancient languages and um, translations of the Bible, for example. So um, incorporating these uh, elements into, into culture um, through the written word. Um, and then so as he points out that this this has um, uh, a certain particularism, I guess you could say, uh, built into it. So it's only um, a written text is only accessible to someone who actually knows that language. So you have to be brought up in that language or or learn it through school or something like that. Um, so it, it lacks that same the universality that um, is present in the uh, the image, which uh, is uh, characteristic of the second stage. Of, uh, of encyclopedism. So in the encyclopedia itself, uh, in the encyclopedia of the 18th century, um, it uh, relies on these etchings, um, which contain detailed technical drawings of all the machines and tools and, and so on. Um, and, uh, uh, and then he also uh, mentions this, uh, this book on um, uh, the book for shepherds, which contains uh, detailed diagrams. Uh, so these these diagrams or, or technical technical drawings, they are universal in the sense that they don't rely on um, a, a previous uh, initiation into uh, a certain language group. Uh, so this is a, a further step uh, in the development of this encyclopedic spirit. I wonder, based on these comments, um, differentiating uh, word and image, uh, what we can make of Simondon's own writing. I mean, it is kind of, uh, it has its own initiatory uh, weight, I don't know. Uh, it, it has the capacity of being exclusive itself, I guess, based on what he says. Yes, that's that's true. Um, and, you know, we, we've struggled a little bit with some of the earlier aspects where he, he sort of uh, presupposes a, a pretty extensive uh, knowledge of uh, like vacuum tube technology, for example, that, that none of us really have today. So it, uh, he, he does rely on um, this sort of initiation into uh, technical knowledge um, that a lot of us don't have. So um, to the extent that he's relying on the written word and, uh, and a previous initiation into technology, it does um, remain exclusive uh, in that way. Uh, but he also does, um, well, at least in, in the translation here, uh, it, it incorporates a number of uh, drawings between section one, or sorry, part one and part two of the book. There's, uh, I think, about 15 or 20 pages worth of, of drawings and diagrams, um, which were not included in the initial um, uh, French version. Um, uh, but he, he he did these diagrams of uh, different technical objects that he discusses in the first part. Um, so that's he does incorporate some of this uh, the second stage of encyclopedism, this uh, the use of the image to try to I guess um, um, 
initiate the reader into uh, into this technical knowledge that they may not have. Okay, so I'll continue on to uh, the next section. A third stage of encyclopedic thinking finally appears to announce itself in our own era, but hasn't yet succeeded in constituting its, mode, uh, its modes of universal expression. The civilization of oral symbolism has once more overcome that of spatial visual symbolism, because the new means of diffusion of information have given primacy to oral expression. When information must be converted into a printed object and transported, a delay separating the discovered thought from the expressed thought is the same for written information as it is for figural information. Printing tends to privilege figural information because it ne necessarily uses the spatial form. The schema is that which does not require translation into a form other than its original form, whereas writing is the translation of a series that is temporal in its origin into a spatial series, which will have to be converted back into a temporal series upon reading it. On the contrary, in the case of information transmitted by telephone, telegraph, or radio waves, the means of transmission requires the translation of a spatial schema into a temporal series, and subsequently its conversion back into a spatial schema. Radio diffusion in particular is directly suited to oral expression and may be adapted to the transmission of a spatial schema only with great difficulty. It consecrates the primacy of sound. Spatial information is thus relegated to the domain of exp expensive or rare things, always late with respect to oral information, and which is valued because it follows every step of vital coming into being. A civilization, however, is guided by a latent paradigmatism at the level of the information it values. This paradigmatism has once again become oral. Thinking once again takes place according to verbal semantemes of the order of the slogan. The acting presence of interhuman relations is, one of the, is of the order of the verb. There is, of course, cinema and also television. But we must note that due to the very dynamism of its images, cinematography is a cinematic dramatic action rather than a graphics of simultaneity and not a direct expression of the intelligible and stable form. Subsequent in its discovery to the first attempts at the transmission of images by television, Cinematography has completely supplanted the latter and has imposed on it the dynamism of images, which still burdens television with an enormous task and turns it into a competitor or imitator of cinematography, incapable of discovering its own modes of expression, enslaved to the public as a means of pleasure. Cinematographic movement is rich in hypnosis and rhythm that dulls the reflexive faculties of the individual in order to induce a state of aesthetic participation. Organized according to a temporal series that employs visual terms, Cinema is an art and a means of expressing emotions. The image here is a word or a phrase. It is not an object comprising a structure to be analyzed by the activity of the individual being. It rarely becomes an immobile and radiating symbol. Furthermore, television could become a means of information contemporary to human activity, which cinema cannot be since being a fixed and recorded thing, it puts everything it incorporates into the past. But since television wants to be dynamic, it is obliged to transform every point of its image into a temporal series in as short a time as the projection of each static image in the cinema. Therefore, it must first of all transform the dynamic into the static through a first cut into images. Then, during the transformation of each, each fixed image, it transforms the simultaneous points of this fixed image into a temporal series. Upon its arrival, each temporal series transforms itself into a spatial and immobile picture, and the rapid succession of these fixed images, as in cinematography, recreates the analyzed movement according to the characteristics of the perception of movement. This double transformation consequently results in the necessity of transmitting an enormous quantity of information, even for an image that is extremely simple in its intelligible structure. There's no common measure between the quantity of information that is effectively interesting and significant for the subject and the quantity of information that is technically employed, corresponding to several million signals per second. This waste of information hinders television from being a subtle and faithful means of expression for the individual and prevents a veritable visual symbolism from constituting itself universally. 
radio broadcasts cross boundaries, whereas visual information often remains tied to the communitarian life of groups and cannot be valued in these conditions. The research into coding systems useful for inscribing the results of calculating machines on the cathode ray oscilloscope screen or for displaying signals of electromagnetic detection on the same type of screen appears capable of conveying a very great simplification of the Hertzian transmission of schematic images. Visual information would thus regain the place that it has lost because of radio broadcasts with respect to spoken language and would be capable of giving rise to a new universal symbolism. So again, another long paragraph, um, but so here he's pointing to uh, a third stage of encyclopedism that is uh, incomplete in the time he's writing in, in the 1950s. Um, so he sees this as a um, uh, as the oral culture regaining, um, uh, so, or the oral transmission of information regaining uh, primacy in culture, um, as opposed to the uh, visual uh, transmission of information through images. Um, so radio is a, his primary um, uh, um, model here, I, I guess. Um, but then he also he looks at television as um, even though it, it transmits visual information, it's, uh, it's, uh, does so through moving images in time rather than static images. Um, and, uh, and so it's, um, it's uh, sort of uh, is modeled on um, the, the word and the expression of emotions rather than the, uh, the visual image um, as, as found in, a, in the encyclopedia, for example. And, uh, and so it doesn't transmit information in the same way as visual images, uh, et etchings in a, in a book or something like that. So who would like to read the next section? Um, I can read the next few ones. The encyclopedic intention in turn begins to show itself within the sciences and techniques through the tendency towards rationalization of the machine and through establishment of a symbolism common to the machine and to man. It is because of this symbolism that a synergy between man and machine is possible, for common action requires a means of communication. And since man cannot have several types of thought, every translation corresponds to a loss of information. It is this mix of relation between man and machine that a new universal symbolism must emulate in order to be homogeneous with a universal encyclopedism. Cybernetic thinking has already led in information theory to research such as that to into human engineering. Um, here is just, he used English original one, which specifically studies the relation between man and machine. One can henceforth conceive of an encyclopedism on technological basis. This, is, uh, this new encyclopedism must, like the two preceding ones, bring about a liberation, but in a different sense. It cannot be a repetition of the Enlightenment. In the 16th century, man was enslaved to intellectual stereotypes. In the 18th century, he was limited by the hierarchical aspect of social rigidity. In the 20th century, he was enslaved in his dependence on unknown and distant powers that direct him while he can neither knew nor react against them. It is isolation that enslaves him, and the lack of homogeneity of information that alienates him. Having become a machine in a mechanized world, he can regain his freedom only by taking on his role and by superseding it through an understanding of technological functions thought from the point of view of their universality. Every encyclopedism is humanism. If by humanism one means the will to return to a status of freedom, to what has been alienated, uh, alienated in man, 
so that nothing human should be foreign to man. However, this rediscovery can take place in different ways, and each age recreates a humanism that is, to a certain extent, always appropriate to its circumstances, because it takes aim at the most severe aspect of alienation that a civilization contains or produces. No one has uh, much to say today. It's uh, there isn't too much uh, discussion compared to uh, last week. Um, but uh, yeah, so here he's. Uh, sorry, go ahead, sixty-one. I was just going to rationalize and say that it's just the beginning of the section, so we're just absorbing it. Yeah, that's fair. That might be the reason. Um, uh, so I was just going to say that. Um, yeah, so he's, he's uh, bringing back this idea of alienation that we saw in the introduction. Um, so um, this uh, humanism that reappears in each of these stages of encyclopedism uh, is a, an attempt to um, regain um, something that has been alienated from human nature. Uh, so human nature is, uh, is separated from something that should belong to it. Um, and then so today, in the, or at the time he's writing in the 20th century, um, technical reality is alienated from human nature is it's um, experienced as something uh, foreign and uh, and uh, alien um, and so the the task is to reincorporate it into human culture and so this would be another form of humanism so who would like to continue from here okay the Renaissance defined a humanism capable of compensating for the alienation resulting from ethical and intellectual dogmatism. It aimed at regaining the freedom of theoretical intellectual thought. The 18th century wanted to rediscover the signification of the effort of human thought applied to techniques, and with the idea of progress, rediscover the nobility of creative continuity that can be found in inventions. It has defined the right of a technical initiative to exist despite the inhibiting forces of societies. The 20th century seeks a humanism capable of compensating for the form of alienation that intervenes within the very development of techniques through a series of specializations that society demands and produces. There appears to be a singular law of the transformation, devenir, of human thought, according to which any ethical, technical, and scientific invention, which sets out as a means of liberation and rediscovery of man, becomes through its historical evolution an, an instrument that turns against its liberation and enslaves man by limiting him. At its origin, Christianity was a liberating force calling on man to go beyond the formalism of customs and the institutional prestige of ancient society. It was the thought according to which the Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It is this same Christianity, however, which the reformers of the Renaissance accused of being a force of rigidity, tied to a constraining formalism and dogmatism, contrary to the real and profound sense of human life. The Renaissance opened physis to anti-physis. Similarly, techniques, invoked as a liberation through progress during the Enlightenment, are today accused of oppressing man and reducing him to slavery by denaturing him of estranging him from himself through a specialization that is a barrier and source of incomprehension. The center of convergence has become a principle of partitioning or partitioning. This is why humanism can never be a doctrine or even an attitude capable of being defined once and for all. 
each epoch must must discover its humanism by orienting itself towards the main danger of alienation. During the Renaissance, the rigidity of dogma led to the emergence of a new fervor and a new movement, Elan. This is again something we I think we can characterize as a, a dialectical mode of uh, of reasoning or or of uh, conceptual exposition here. So he he talks about how um, what at one time can be a liberating force um, can be inverted into its opposite, can become a, a force uh, constraining human uh, development. So Christianity appears in uh, the ancient world um, as a, a force that liberates humans from um, uh, uh, formalism, uh, and uh, then by the time of the Renaissance, it uh, is presented as, uh, or, or sorry, at the Reformation, it's presented as a new kind of formalism that has to be uh, overcome again, um, that has to be uh, renewed. Um, and so the, in the same way, uh, technology or technical reality appears um, at the time of the encyclopedia as a, a form of liberation and of uh, uh, a sphere of, of human progress and, and invention. Um, and then by the 20th century, uh, uh, technical reality appears as a, something that alien and oppressive. Um, so the, the task is always uh, different in each different era. So the humanism has a, a different um, task of, uh, of liberation, depending on what the form of alienation is in that era. I like the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I like when um, he says that humanism can never be a doctrine or even an attitude capable of being defined once and for all. I think this is, um, this particularly rings rings with me because I've been focusing just recently on the, the jargon of of hu humanity and, and the kind of cult of man, so to speak, and um, a lot of the post-war um, German intellectuals um, kind of relating to this this humanism as something specifically um, uh, specifically related to the the kind of German a German jargon that was used a certain kind of code which was said to have infected the the Germans in this wartime period um and this this kind of defining of what it is human what is human what is the human uh what is what is man you know where you where you can ex include or exclude people from it or where where things can be categorically diverse where where hu human humanism is kind of a code for you know, we're human, but we don't know about you, you being human. You lack some kind of inwardness or authenticity or, or you know, sp some com commitment of some, some spiritual commitment. And um, this, this sense of like humanism or humanity, I think, is um, really um, crucial and crucial in its fragility um, in, the, in the sense of the term, like, um, and, uh, and Simone Dunn likely, uh, um, similarly, he he um, doesn't doesn't want to say, oh, humanism is this like overwhelming force which is does this and that, and he doesn't want to engage in this kind of jargon. He wants to kind of distance himself from a kind of univocal humanism, and seems like he wants to 
make humanism a historical contingency, so to speak, um, related to technical uh, objects and such. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, uh, the historical contingency, humanism as a historical contingency. So um, you could oppose that to what you could call, I guess, an essentialist humanism. So it would be a humanism that's that's based on some idea of human nature. So um, you have some list of properties that suppose that are supposed to um, uh, characterize the human being uh, uniquely, whether it's you know rationality or or uh, I don't know spirituality or whatever you want to pick as your your set of um, uh, properties. Um, but uh, as you, as you point out, this um, this type of essentialist humanism um, can easily lend itself to uh, um, excluding other uh, people from the human. So you can say, you know, this group of people is not uh, properly human because they don't have this uh, this property that that I'm taking to be the the essence of humanity. Um, but this type of this um, contingent hu uh, humanism that that uh, um, Simon Don is, is proposing, or you could call it, I guess, a dynamical humanism. Um, so it, it's not, he's not proposing any set of, uh, of properties or any essence of what it is to be human. Um, but he's, he's, um, he's thinking of humanism here as uh, an overcoming of alienation within um, each uh, contingent historical circumstance. So it's, uh, it's not, um, uh, there's no, um, Sort of fixed essence of what it is to be human, but there is an overcoming of um, the alienation of certain uh, elements of culture from the human. Yeah, but um, as he was speaking of the alienation, I guess one of the aspects I'm scared about the most is um, how what is a, a fundamental requirement of access to that type of knowledge. Um, in my case, it would just be necessity, the universal necessity of speaking English and that bringing a certain access to um, approach the resources that even is available to a certain type of liberation. But then what type of liberation has the fundamental requirement of speaking English has enforced? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's fair to uh, to point to the the limitations of uh, of this um, um, I guess form of humanism. Uh, it's not um, um, so the there's all there's still um, this uh, initiatory aspect or or this dependence on uh, particularism of of the English language, for example. Um, even to the even though English has become sort of the lingua franca of the world, uh, it's still um, requires this um, uh, this teaching uh, and this um, uh, initiation into the language, um, this particular language. Um, and so there is gonna be differences in terms of access of who um, has the capacity to uh, you know, send their kids to English school um, or something like that, um, or, or which people are, are raised in an English speaking society and which ones aren't. Um, there's gonna be differences in, in access in that uh, sphere as well. So. Um, even though this uh, this stage of encyclopedism is uh, meant to have this sort of universal significance through the use of images, um, there's still remnants of this earlier 
stage where you, you have to rely on on the word, which is always um, particular in that sense, in in the sense that it um, it's, it relies on initiation into a certain language group. Yeah, maybe the concern is not quite so much uh, social economical or monetary. Um, I guess more in mental space. Uh, but yeah, that that wasn't a particular point germane to his theorization. More of just um, correlation to contemporary situations. So by mental space, you're referring to, I guess, um, like the the fact that it just takes more effort for someone to um, to work in in English if that's not their first language um, compared to someone who who is working in their first language. Is that what you mean? No, I mean like uh, for instance, um, for the average person, it takes a lot to learn a language and not necessarily for it to become slower, but just the fact for it to take any space at all. And there's a certain prioritization. Like, for instance, in Canada, you look at so many second, third generation immigrants who don't speak their original language at all and therefore um, do not have a substantial understanding about uh, their origins of political struggle or um, or even cultural significance. Like I've, uh, in, in my perspective, I met Chinese people who can't speak anything. And frankly, it's understanding Taoism from an English translation point of view, which is extremely reductive. And, uh, the, and, and therefore has shifted a lot regarding their political opinion and everything that trickles down from that. Uh, so I guess that's what I mean by mental capacity and attention that uh, monetary or capital is very regainable, but um, that initial attention or initial familiarity, or even as what Simandan talked here as the uh, intuition that is built during the childhood phase is completely lost. Right, so yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's a good point. Um, that's this, uh, that, um... So this, yeah, the, the new stage of encyclopedism that he's pointing to um, doesn't fully overcome uh, the previous uh, sort of um, exclusive uh, aspects of culture and uh, um, uh, this particularism of culture. So there, there's a, the universality doesn't um, eliminate the particularism. And uh, um, so there, there's still, um, because there are multiple particular cultures, there's still um, something that is lost when you're not initiated into um, one culture versus another one. Just this, this whole conversation uh, kind of also puts me in mind of uh, Chantal Mouffe's ideas about the paradoxes of democracy, that there's a kind of similar, a similar dynamic going on where, uh, you know, to be human is kind of an open question. And so um, and so the need to just kind of perpetually negotiate the universal and the particular. Yeah, I'm not I'm not familiar with uh, with her work, um, but uh, that sounds like uh, something similar to what um, is going on in this text. Okay, so I can I think we can go on to the next section, and I can read. Man no longer needs a universalizing liberation, but a mediation. The new magic will not be found in a direct expression of the individual power to act, assured by the knowledge that gives each gesture effective certainty, but by the rationalization of forces that situate man by giving him meaning within a human and natural ensemble. The very fact that teleology is treated as a knowable mechanism 
that is not definitively mysterious is indicative of the attempt not to accept a situation as one simply lives it and is subjected to it. Rather than seeking the procedure for the fabrication of objects without making a pact with matter, man frees himself from his situation of being enslaved by the finality of the whole, uh, by learning how to create finality, by learning how to organize the finalized whole that he judges and appreciates, so as not to have to be passively subjected to a de facto integration. Cybernetics being a theory of information and as a consequence, also a theory of finalized structures and dynamisms, frees man from the constraining enclosure of organization by enabling him to judge this organization rather than being subjected to it while venerating and respecting it because he is not capable of thinking or constituting it. Uh, so a footnote here. Uh, in past centuries, an important case, uh, an important cause of alienation lay in the fact that the human being lent his biological individuality to, te to technical organization. He was bearer of tools. Technical ensembles could establish themselves only by incorporating man as a tool bearer. The deforming aspect of the profession was at once psychic and somatic. The tool bearer was deformed by the usage of tools. Professional somatic deformations have become rare in the present day. Their repugnance felt by the gentleman, the Naitan, toward men of the trade, there is perhaps a part of the unpleasant feeling that one has when seeing a monstrosity. Today's occupational hazards are minimal with respect to the professional deformations of the past. For Plato, the Banausos is a bald dwarf. In the Song legend, the shoemaker is a disinherited creature. Now, end of the footnote. Man overcomes enslavement by consciously organizing finality, just as he dominated the unfortunate necessity of work during the 18th century by rationalizing it so as to render work efficient rather than suffering through it in resignation. Human society, in knowing its own teleological mechanisms, is the result of conscious human thought and consequently incorporates those who create it. It is the product of a human effort of organization and creates an adequation between the fact of being situated and the fact of situating oneself. The place man has in a society thereby becomes a relation between an element of activity and an element of passivity, as a mixed status always liable to being taken up again and improved, because it is something human that is interrupted but not alienated. Consciousness is at once a demiurgic activity and the result of a preceding organization. Social reality is contemporary with human effort and homogeneous with it. Only a schema of simultaneity, a constellation of forces represented in their relational power, can be adequate for this type of reality. Its development is what such a dynamic representation of man in society postulates. Cybernetic schemas can only acquire a universal sense in a society that is already constituted in a manner that conforms to this thought. The most difficult reactivity to establish is that of a society in relation to cybernetic thought itself. It can constitute itself only progressively and via the mediation of already established channels of information, such as the exchanges, for example, between techniques working synergistically on a given point. It is this type of grouping that Norbert Wiener cites as the source of his, this new technology, which is a technics of technics, at the beginning of his cybernetics published in 1948, and which is a new discourse on method, written by a mathematician teaching at an institute of technology. Cybernetics grants man a new type of majority, one that penetrates the relations of authority by distributing itself across the social body and discovers the maturity of reflection beyond the maturity of reason, thereby giving man, in addition, in addition to the freedom to act, power to create organization by establishing teleology. Consequently, both finality and organization, which can now be rationally thought and created since they become a matter of technics, are no longer ulterior, superior reasons capable of justifying everything. If finality becomes an object of technics, then there is something beyond finality in ethics. Cybernetics, in this sense, frees man from the unconditional prestige of the idea of finality. Man freed himself through technics from social constraint. 
through the technology of information, he becomes creator of this organization of solidarity that hitherto imprisoned him. The stage of technical encyclopedism can only be provisional. It calls for a stage of a technological encyclopedism that completes it by giving the individual a possibility of returning to the social, which now changes status and becomes the object of an organizational construction, rather than being the acceptance of a valorized given or one that is bought, but which subsists within its primitive characteristics external to the activity of man. Individual nature is thus no longer external to the human domain. After, have, after acceding to freedom comes access to authority in the full sense of the term, i.e. that of creative force. Now this, this is a rather complicated paragraph. Yeah, there's a lot going on uh, and it's a long paragraph with a, a lot of different elements. So maybe we can go through it um, sort of in order. Um, so uh, the first thing is he, so he's opposing um, this new stage of encyclopedism uh, that he's calling for is not going to be universalizing like the older ones, it's going to be a mediation. Um, so it's, uh, it will um, uh, situate the individual human being in relation to a wider technical reality rather than um, uh, like the old encyclopedia, um, giving the individual human uh, mastery over the totality of uh, technical knowledge of that era. And so he's introducing here for the first time um, the idea of cybernetics, um, uh, or well, he mentioned it sort of in passing in the introduction, I think, but this is the first um, more detailed um, uh, discussion of the topic, but uh, cybernetics as the science of teleology. So teleology meaning um, goal-directedness um, or, or finality. Um, so cybernetics is a uh, in this understanding is the, the science um, or the study of um, finality or goal directedness in technical objects. Um, and so by making teleology into something that can be studied rationally in, in uh, scientific terms, um, it incorporates it into uh, human culture rather than uh, teleology being something that human beings are submitted to. It's something that human beings can master collectively. Didn't um I don't recall. Did you read the the footnote for twelve? Uh, yes. So he, here in that footnote, he's he's contrasting. Um, um, so he, he's pointing to um, the ways in which uh, in earlier societies, um, specialization uh, or the division of labor um, um, led to these. Uh, um, occupational deformities. So this is something that continues up until the 19th, uh, maybe early 20th century where particular occupations because of you know exposure to certain chemicals or, or you know, repetitive movements or whatever it is would, would have these characteristic diseases or, or deformities um, uh, um, so that um, each, uh, you know, by, by being specialized in one particular um, field of, of uh, of labor, uh, a person would would be uh, even physically um, subjected to that uh, field of work um, through these deformities or, or diseases, um, um, and that's something that's you know with uh, you know the introduction of, of uh, you know safety measures and and things like that has been definitely reduced in uh, in the twentieth and, and into today. It's a long shot, but do you happen to know um, what he claims Plato? Uh, calls a bald dwarf, what what that term uh, indicates in Greek? Uh, no, I'm not sure. Uh, 
I would guess it's a minor, but I, uh, that's just a guess. I'm going to see if I can find it. Okay. But yeah, we can uh, we can continue as I um, try to look that up. Um, but uh, so let's see. We looked at uh, cybernetics as the science of teleology. Um, right. So right, and the, the cybernetics, the the etymology comes from like um, st ship steering, if I'm correct, in in the Greek, the cyber. Um, it it means kind of an orientation. So I guess when you're talking about like the um, and this is this is what what uh, Wiener Norbert Wiener uses uh, as to to talk, to coin I guess did, did he, uh, he he must have coined cybernetics right I, I'm pretty sure he did maybe it was it was someone else but um, but yeah no this this relates very much to like the the already organized kind of purposes of activity um, so, which is related to like the, the teleological uh, criteria or like the aim of of something rather than just some practice. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure it was Wiener that, that coined the term cybernetics. And uh, yes, it, so it comes from the Greek kubernetes, uh, um, like uh, the helmsman of a, of a ship. Um, so um, it's, uh, so he understood it as the, the, um, the science of the, the government of processes um, in in machines and in uh, um, animals, um, and so it's uh, uh, it's the, the the science of goal directedness in general, in, in the sense that um, um, processes are are governed um, in relation to a certain goal. And um, the 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 characterization of cybernetics as a technics of technics. Um, do you have any insight into? how this kind of uh, cybernetics could indicate the second order techniques. Uh, where does that come up? The techniques of techniques? I don't remember that. Uh, it's in the, the part where uh, Wiener, Wiener is mentioned, um, um, just in the middle of 120, about halfway through. Oh, yeah, so I, I see it now, yeah. Um, so it says, uh, it is this type of grouping that Norbert Wiener cites as the source of this new technology, which is the techniques of techniques at the beginning of cybernetics. Uh, right. So, um, so here again, he's using the word technology um, to mean the the science of technical reality or the study of technical reality, um, as opposed to that technical reality itself. Um, so cybernetics is a is a techniques of techniques in the sense that it um, allows for uh, it's the study of um, setting up technical systems in such a way that they'll be directed towards a certain goal. Okay. Yeah, no, that sounds, it's just, I, I hadn't run across that, that, that precise phrasing before the techniques of techniques. That was, is interesting to, to consider cybernetics as this, um, um, as this, this second order technique, sort of a technique on techniques, so to speak. Uh, but I suppose this isn't just uh, for cybernetics, but all technology is supposed to be tech techniques of techniques. Do you think? Yeah, I think that's that's right. Um, so technology, as the the study of uh, technical reality, would be itself um, a technical operation. So it it, uh, it is something that operates on technical reality in order to. Um, uh, orient it in a certain way or to uh, to 
organize it in a certain way. Uh, I just posted in the chat um, a link to the dictionary entry on, on Banausos, the, um, that Greek term um, that was cited in the footnote there. Um, so it means a, a craftsman um, or an artisan, uh, and it has a, a derogatory sense. Hmm. Uh, I'm uh, I'm honestly curious as to how as to where Plato characterizes the the craftsman as a ball dwarf. <laughs> like I I want to I want to know which which Plato uh, which book is this written in. I'm curious. Maybe I can find that. Yeah, there are different. There are a few different um, like search engines you can use um, where you can search in the the corpus of of sort of um, classical Greek texts like Plato, Aristotle, and so on. Um, and you, so you can look up a certain word and see which uh, which books they use them in, which is a, a pretty useful resource. Nice. I'll have to let's seek those out. Okay. So, um, is there anything else in that last paragraph? I think we covered the the main. Oh, so one one last point is uh, so he opposes right right towards the end of that long paragraph uh, near the bottom of one twenty, he opposes the the technical encyclopedism. So um, the uh, um, I, I guess that's pointing towards the, the 18th century encyclopedia. Um, so it's an encyclopedism that um, takes all the technical knowledge of a certain era and um, sort of um, uh, organizes it in such a way that an individual can become master of this technical knowledge. Um, he opposes he this technical encyclopedism to what he calls the technological encyclopedism. Um, which is what he's pointing towards with uh, cybernetics. So that would technological encyclopedism um, would, instead of giving the individual uh, mastery of, of technical reality of that era, um, so because of the technical reality of the 20th century and, and you know, the 21st century, of course, as well, is, uh, is beyond what any individual can master, this technological encyclopedism uh, would instead um, allow the individual to incorporate themselves into this technical reality, um, but in, in a, um, a conscious way. So, um, the individual would not be subordinated to the finality of this technical um, uh, reality, but they would be uh, have a, a conscious understanding of the finality, and uh, the um, finality of these arrangements would be consciously decided. That puts me in mind of the open source uh, software movement today, the fact that it's no longer just the case that you go and learn about some particular technique, but that you go and Kind of invest yourself in a, in a social reality of of manipulating software and forking it and doing different things with it according to the utility with which you find yourself in a group of other people what you want to accomplish with it yeah i think we've brought up um open source software um in in previous discussions um maybe in relation to the technical mentality paper or or you know previous texts that we read from from simon Dole. and it, it, i think that's definitely something that he would have been interested in if he uh you know had lived to see it uh um, so, it's, you know, the idea of uh, developing software for its own sake and uh, um, rather than sort of submitting that software to commercial imperatives and, you know, the ways that it can deform uh, technical progress that, that he's discussed in a few different places, um, it would have a sort of autonomous development. Um, and uh, it's part of a, a social organization where, um, um, you know, there's more like the, the sort of community of open source development is more than any one person can can master or um, organize. Um, so each person is incorporated into that social structure uh, or organization um, through the the work that they do to um, to make 
uh, progress uh, of the software happen. Okay, so um, we can continue with the, the next bit. I think we'll probably just finish this section since we're coming up on, on uh, two hours. Um, so there's a couple more paragraphs, so I will start reading. Um, Such are the three stages of the encyclopedic spirit, which was first ethical, then technical, and which can then become technological by going beyond the idea of finality taken as ultimate justification. However, it is wrong to say that the techniques of finalized organization are useful only because of their practical results. They are useful in the sense that, that they bring finality from the magical level to the technical level. Whereas the evocation of a superior end and of the order that realizes this end is considered to be the final term in the search for its justification, because life is completed with finality in an age when technical schemas are mere schemas of causality. The introduction of technological schemas of finality in thought plays a cathartic role. That of which there is a technics cannot act as an ultimate justification. Both individual life and social life contain many aspects of finalized processes, but, but perhaps finality is not the most profound aspect of individual or social life, any more so than the different modalities of finalized actions, such as adaptation to a milieu. So he's bringing up again uh, something that um, we didn't discuss. In, it was in the last paragraph, but uh, we didn't mention it. Um, but this this notion that um, cybernetics or this technological encyclopedism um, by giving uh, society uh, mastery over finality by by developing this techniques of finality, it means that finality can no longer be an ultimate justification. So um, the idea uh, so. In a, an or, in a society that doesn't have this mastery over finality, um, the idea of uh, society being organized towards a certain end can be used as, as a sort of ultimate justification. You know, the, there's an order, a natural order of things, uh, and you know, certain people are are uh, serfs, and certain people are are lords, and certain people are are um, I don't know merchants or whatever, and that's just the the natural order of things. Um, but once you have uh, this development of a, a technics of finality, that that finality can no longer be um, an ultimate justification for um, why things are the way they are. So um, by having this um, technological schema of finality um, as, as a part of our, our cultural um, heritage, if you want to call it that, it means that we can uh, sort of exercise that um, that uh, justification of a certain order through, uh, based on uh, the concept of finality. Okay, so who would like to read the last paragraph? I can knock this one out. Oh, I'm just, I'm mapping, um, I'm trying to figure out how these these stages of the encyclopedic spirit map onto the the developments in in cybernetics in the 20th century and I'm, i have like this crazy chart that i'm trying to figure out right now my drawing a bunch of lines to other lines and stuff but anyway um one could undoubtedly say that it is not a veritable finality that animates the processes of recurrent causality with negative reaction at the very least this technical production of teleological mechanisms enables the most inferior most primitive aspect of finality to leave the magical domain behind. The subordination of a means to an end, hence the superiority of an end with respect to its means. By becoming a technical matter, such organization is henceforth the only one of the aspects of social or individual life, and its prestige can no longer mask the possibilities for the development, advent, and emergence of new forms, 
which cannot be justified by finality, since they produce their own end as the last term of evolution. Evolution maladapts as much as it adapts. The realization of adaptations is but one of life's aspects. Homeostases are partial functions. Technology, in incorporating them and allowing them not only to be thought, but to be brought into existence rationally, leaves the open processes of social and individual life fully exposed. In this sense, technology reduces alienation. So again, technology here meaning the, the study of uh, technical reality or the understanding of technical reality. So um, am I, this technical, um, at least in terms of the stages of the encyclopedic spirit, this technical, I'm sorry, the, the technological seems to correspond precisely with the cybernetic, right? Because it's the cybernetic third stage of the encyclopedic spirit, which is, which is technological. Um, am I getting that right? Like the first step, the Renaissance is ethical, then the enlightenment stage is technical and the cybernetic stage is technological. Yeah, that's how I understand it as well. I think that's, I think that's right. Okay. I have to, now I have to add uh, second order and third order cybernetics on top of this and make, <laughs> make a giant diagram. Yeah, that'd be interesting too. I mean, I, I'm not very familiar with, uh, you know, second, second order, um, cybernetics and, and that um, sort of, uh, field, but it would be interesting if you could uh, post that in the, in the chat when you, uh, when you're Once done I with figure that. It out. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'll gladly do that. I'm, I just, I just learned that third order cybernetics was like a thing, like, I think this morning, actually, from some cursory research on, on the ethical regulator, this kind of uh, apparatus, which is supposed to function ethically or something like that. <laughs> some fun cybernetic stuff. But um, I almost like did a double take. And I was like, wait a second, third order cybernetics? Like, I didn't think this was a thing. I swear before I, I told a few people, I was like, there's no point in going beyond the second order here. Like, I'm just don't have to think third and fourth and fifth or whatever. But then I see somebody citing third order cybernetics as like a relevant, um, a relevant factor. But yeah, I'm still, I'm still having trouble understanding second order cybernetics and that's what I'm working on more so. So I think, I think talk about third order cybernetics is very recent actually. Oh, yeah, the, the, the different um, developments in cybernetics would be um, something that uh, again, this would have happened uh, after this was published, and, and probably I think after Simon Don died uh, in 1980, I believe. Um, um, so uh, um, it's sort of beyond the the scope of this text, but it's something that I, I'm sure he would have been interested in in studying and and following as well. Right. Yeah. I think. Um. What is it? Um. What is his name? Forster. Um. Gosh, I always forget his name. The second order cybernetics guy. Heinz uh, von Forster. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Go, go on. Um, no, I'm just I'm just recollecting various details at this point. I don't really have a cogent theme to my my critique here. Um, but yeah, no. He, um, there's definitely like a few big names that were writing in the 70s and 80s, I suppose, a little bit. But I Simondon is probably just the the kind of backdrop for a lot of a lot of this this writing rather than. Um, I don't know. Actually, I, I mean, I shouldn't say that because I don't know how much dialogue he had with the second order cybernetics people. Like, I'm, maybe he corresponded with Lumen or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. 
Yeah, I'm not sure about the uh, the sort of direct intellectual interaction that there was uh, between them. Um, um, like Simon Don borrows a lot of uh, cybernetic uh, concepts and makes reference to some of the the classic texts of, of cybernetics, like uh, Wiener's book. Um, but I'm not sure how much direct interaction he had with um, the sort of um, uh, cybernetic movement or or society, um, um, as, like as an organized uh, society. I'm not sure, but I think he may have actually gone to the Macy conferences. Like Simandel was actually in attendance to the Macy conferences in certain years. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you mentioned that uh, a few weeks ago, and that's uh, um, yeah, that would be really interesting to uh, to sort of track down um, which ones he attended and, and who he may have, may have um, interacted with while he was there. Um, because, there, yeah, like all the sort of uh, leading names of, uh, of cybernetics were involved in those conferences. Yeah, I'm definitely reading now that <clears throat> that um, Simone Doan is cited as an influencer for Lumen. So I don't know if they they interacted, but they um, Lumen definitely was... Um, well, quote, with the help of the theories of machines developed by Simone Den, dot, 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 Lumens, Lumens, blah, 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 blah. So yeah, it's it's definitely uh, um, considered to be, um, what's what's the word, a predecessor in some regards. I'm just reading a review here that says, uh, Wiener gave a widely publicized lecture at the Collège de France in 1950 and was the featured speaker in 1962 with the prestigious Colloque Philosophique Internationale, organized by Simon at Royamont. So he actually hosted Wiener as a speaker in 1962. Oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's uh, um, so. Yeah, they obviously had some direct um, contacts. Um, you know, he was, who knows exactly what they would have discussed at the time, but uh, um, yeah, that's interesting that they they had um, that direct contact like that. Okay, so we're we're almost at two hours now, so uh, I think we'll leave the the fourth section for next time. Um, and it's I don't think it's very long, so we'll probably get through the fourth section of the chapter and then go on to yeah, it's about uh, six pages, uh, and then we'll go on to chapter two and see how far we get in there as well. Um, so thank you everyone for for joining in and for your um, participation, uh, and I'll see you all next week. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Um, I'm gonna try to get um, uh, the, this rec this recording and the last one, I guess, um, made into a nice little MP3 file so we can listen to them at our leisure. So hopefully that will be ASAP. Um, I'll you, you I'll let y'all know. Just check the room for details, I guess. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks again for uh, for volunteering to uh, to edit the files. Uh, it's a big help. Oh yeah, no problem. It's it's fairly easy for me on on my end. It, besides like taking a while to like load the giant files, the other parts easy. So no no problem at all. My pleasure, of course. Okay, bye everybody. All right, see you next time. Bye. Bye.